Hello and welcome to the Toxpot. I'm Tim Scott and it's time for another update on new psychoactive substances. And with me today, as usual, are Alex Kratulski from the Centre for Forensic Science Research and Education, Connor Crean from the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime, and for the first time on an NPS update episode, although not his first time on the Toxpod, is Svante Vikingsen, Chair of the TF NPS Committee. Welcome, everyone. Hey, Tim. So, Alex, in the last NPS update episode, we were talking about xylazine a little bit. Obviously, that was a hot topic earlier in the year. What have you been seeing there and what other trends are you seeing at the moment in the US? Uh, yeah, xylazine remains a, a commonly detected analyte here in the United States. Uh, and there continues to be different conversations surrounding its scheduling and its impacts. But as it relates to other NPS classes, uh, there's a couple of NPS that have kind of stuck around and have been our main players, things like bromazolam. Uh, remains overwhelmingly the primary NPS benzo that we see uh, in our sample populations. Uh, dimethylpentalone remains the primary synthetic stimulant that we see. So those classes haven't uh, gone through much of a change in the last six to nine months. However, we have seen considerable changes in the nitazine analog market. We're seeing uh, a variety of new nitazine analogs appear again. So in 2022, uh, I think we only had the identification of one new nitazine analog. And then this year we've had uh, somewhere around two or three, uh, maybe more. Uh, we'll see how that shakes out by the end of the year. But yeah, we're we're sort of seeing the diversity of that class, and interestingly, actually seeing cases with a variety of these nitazine analogs. Uh, I call it kind of a potpourri when you've got metanitazine and pyrrolidino protonitazine, protonitazine and pyrrolidino metanitazine, and others all together in one sample. It's interesting yet quite challenging trying to confirm all of those, especially when you've got some isomer pairs in there. Yeah, and pyroladino protonitazine is really the, the primary nitazine analog that we're seeing. Um, we're starting to see increased proliferation of those uh, here in the U.S. and then also over in Europe. And then as it relates to synthetic cannabinoids, we're starting to see uh, what I would consider to be kind of a bounce back. I know probably for the last six months, 12 months, if not more, I keep saying I'm kind of predicting a, a change in the synthetic cannabinoid market, but I do think that that change is becoming more apparent as we start to see more of these synthetic cannabinoid precursors being synthesized and sent to wherever to be produced into their final products. Uh, generally, the precursors are the synthetic cannabinoids without the tail, and then the tail gets added on. And we've seen a, a variety of those precursors, and we've seen a variety then of those final products, things like uh, MDMB Pika, uh, MDMB Panaka, MDMB Butanaka is actually the most recent uh, that seems to be gaining some traction. So uh, so that's where the synthetic cannabinoid market is, uh, kind of different from what we had thought maybe six or nine months ago when we were seeing the oxazids and the piatas and and all those others. We are we are back to the indole and in, the typical indole and indazole cores uh, with kind of the head and uh, tail groups that we saw previously just, again, being synthesized in different ways. How much does the analog legislation cover some of those precursors? Yeah, so the, the class-wide ban that China had imposed uh, pretty much covered all of your typical panakas, binakas, with a variety of different changes under that, under the sort of core structure or class-wide scheduling as they did. They, they scheduled something like six or seven core structures and then a whole bunch of modifications that could be added to those core structures. However, the thing they did not schedule was these precursors that we're seeing technically do not fall under that class ban because 
the band for the tail group included a variety of carbon chains and a variety of different functional groups that could be on that core. However, they didn't schedule a hydrogen being there. So the hydrogen being there and, and the tail being removed actually does not fall under uh, that class-wide legislation. So yeah, these technically would fall outside of that band. It's interesting that promazolam seems to have a lot of staying power. We've seen benzos come and go very quickly at times. Any thoughts on why this one's staying around for a while? Yeah, I think that certainly its properties are favorable, as most benzodiazepines, uh, with sort of slight modifications are. I mean, bromazolam's not uh, all that large of a modification away from alprazolam. Um, you get some of them that are the desalkyls or the like the adenazolam that has the additional functional group that uh, makes it more like a pro drug almost. I mean, those haven't really been all that favorable, but the ones that have been only slight modifications away from drugs like alprazolam and diazepam uh, do seem to have pretty good traction within the supply. I mean, you look at things like fluoralpazolam and atizolam, now bromazolam. But I think that sort of its legal, if you will, status and its sort of favorable properties. I mean, I'm not sure. It probably is controlled in some countries. I know it's not here in the United States, and I know it's not controlled at least yet uh, internationally just have, have kind of pushed that market in that direction. And I think that what we've seen previously is that there's generally one or two benzodiazepines, NPS benzodiazepines that dominate the market. We saw that with atizolam for years and years. Uh, we saw that with then fluoralprazolam, uh, which was kind of second to atizolam in a lot of ways. Uh, and now we've just seen that market shift over once atizolam and fluoralprazolam were scheduled, shift over to bromazolam. So, I mean, I haven't heard any sort of unfavorable uh, effects of bromazolam. Obviously, these NPS benzos show up in a, a variety of different scenarios. They show up in counterfeit Xanax tablets. They show up in the opioid supply here in the United States and these sort of benzodope scenarios. Uh, but it's not like xylazine where you've got all these terrible side effects. Yeah. So now we've talked a little bit about both the legal status of these drugs and, you know, the analog legislation. And one of the trends that I'm sort of seeing on my horizon is that it does seem like when the legislation is catching up and, and starting to ban these on a wider scale, that we see a trend to go for the ones that are illegal too. Is, is that something that you would agree on, Connor and Alex? Yeah, I, I do think that the timing of when legislation comes into place makes a big difference in certain countries and how, how fast countries can then react to evolving situations. And if you talk about change, maybe they're class-based legislation. I know that for us, there's that's several benzodiazepines that have been placed under international control in the last few years, but they've kind of persisted. So there's fluoralprazolam, atizolam, the diclazepam. So they're kind of have stayed. And I know a lot of this can be related to the time member states have to implement international scheduling decisions because there's a lot of things that that follow consequentially to that. So I think the legislation is a key part of it for sure. Yeah, I would say it really depends on the class. With NPS benzos here in the United States, the international control really did wipe out the Tizolam and Fluoralprazolam. Uh, I mean, they are still around here and there, but Bermazolam is by far uh, much, much more prevalent. However, when you look at like the nitazine analog class, metanitazine was scheduled here in the U.S., and then it continued proliferation after. We've seen these weird waves of metanitazine. So there are certain drugs, uh, Svante, to your point, that do stick around after scheduling. When you look at scheduling overall, it certainly is an effective tool, I think, for most 
drugs. And I think for most of the time, you can see sort of direct impacts of scheduling and that drug being eradicated from different drug supplies. But but there are these weird examples of uh, of drugs sticking around. I wouldn't necessarily, just because of the experience we've had with Atizolam and Flopraislam, if, uh, if and when Bermazolam were to be scheduled, I don't know um, what would happen, but I would imagine it would follow kind of a similar trend and that it would kind of fall off and we'd have to see what uh, what it's replaced by. Well, talking about scheduling, Connor, there's been some uh, scheduling processes happening in the UNODC. What's been happening in there the last six months? Yeah, so maybe summarizing where where we were in March, the Commission on Narcotic Drugs voted to schedule seven NPS. Um, four of those were synthetic opioids, so 2-MEAP-237, etazine, etonitazepine, and protonitazine. So these were placed in Schedule 1 of the 1961 Convention which means that they go into force relatively soon after the vote and there's a communication to member states. And then once it's in the 61 convention, they become under international control. And then there are three others, the ADB, Butinaca, three methyl, methcathinone and alpha PIHP. So these were put into the 71 convention. So this then comes into force 180 days later following this communication. So that should happen um, within the next few weeks. So that's the first part of it. And then maybe the second part of it would be last week in Geneva, the 46th Expert Committee on Drug Dependence looked at an additional six NPS to see if they would be recommended for scheduling. So maybe I just say that they these are on the, the website of the Expert Committee on Drug Dependence. You can find this information, but they looked at uh, three CMC, dipentalone, butonidazine, 2-fluorodesclorocetamine, flubromazepam, and bromazolam. Uh, and Alex mentioned that this is a substance that was looked at last year. And I think there's been an increase in reports of that both in the US and also to, to UNODC in the last year or so. So the w- Expert Committee on Drug Dependence carried out their assessment. They will put forward some recommendations that will go to the Commission on Narcotic Drugs in its December reconvene session. And then whatever recommendations they have for scheduling will then be voted upon in March 2024. So that's the kind of the cycle that happens. The scheduling decisions from this year get put into place finally now. And then they start to do this process to look at scheduling for next year. And they've kind of had these meetings every year. And then since maybe NPS became a global phenomenon, let's say that this is almost 80 that have been placed under international control. It might not seem a lot in terms of the, let's say, 1,230 that we now have known that have emerged. But I think that these substances that have been scheduled are the ones for which there is the most evidence that they should be scheduled. So I think the process does a very good job of identifying, and in particular for those more potent, potentially very dangerous substances in recent years, it's scheduled quite a few synthetic opioids and nitazines in the last few years. Yes, we we talk about the huge number that we've seen overall 1000 and whatever the number is but i mean some of those aren't even really active are they we, we, they're just things that we've seen uh, they might not even be pharmacologically active yeah and, and i think this is where we start to look at how we classify them if we classify them both by structure and by action and whether there is that evidence of, of that action out there in the literature i think there are more people working on it now so we're getting to know a lot more but I don't think there aren't as many new substances emerging each year as there there used to be. I think in 2022, there were only 44 new substances. 
compared to almost 90 the previous year. And uh, 2023, only 21 new substances so far. And I think uh, many of these, we see that if we look at it in terms of structure, the largest group of substances you might call that emerged in this time period were synthetic cannabinoids. Well, if we look at them in terms of their action, and as Alex mentioned previously, they may not even be synthetic cannabinoids. It's likely they're probably precursors. Yeah, I think one uh, important thing to remember is that when these uh, NPS, or as we call them, NPS, first emerge, uh, as Connor was mentioning, we don't necessarily know much about their pharmacology. So we've got to be able to to notify colleagues and, and folks all around the world about the emergence of something new uh, before we even know whether or not it's going to create an impact. And and that's quite difficult. And to, to Connor's point, again, it's we sort of struggle with how we classify these drugs. Do we classify them by pharmacological action? Do we classify them by sort of sub- substructural uh, components? And it makes it challenging. So uh, I think the good thing about 2023 and into 2024 is that I think the world is a lot better situated for the emergence of various NPS. We've got research labs around the world that are doing um, what would be considered sort of like prophetic research, trying to predict what may come next. So some of these NPS that emerge, we may already have data on, at least uh, preliminary data. So that's something that that wasn't the case five or 10 years ago. So we are in a better position. We've got more labs doing surveillance work uh, to identify these NPS. But uh, to Connor's point, we've also seen a decline, uh, a slight decline at least from at least from our numbers and doing this in the last five years of, of new NPS uh, emerging here in the United States as well. Which is good. It's nice if they do hang around for a bit longer, like promazolam, things like that, because then you can actually build up some nice data on what these what levels you might expect to see in certain types of cases and so on. Connor, you mentioned uh, one of the ketamine analogs. There are a couple of ketamine analogs around. Ketamine is, even though it's used you know, medicinally, it's classed as an MPS in lots of places. Are we seeing more ketamine analogs coming out? I wouldn't necessarily say there, there are very many. There are a few that, ha- that have appeared. And I think methoxetamine was the first one of them that was then placed under international control a few years ago. Ketamine itself is, is a larger issue, let's say, in certain parts of the world. In Southeast Asia, I know it's, it's, it's a substance that they consider a great concern. But I know it has an awful lot of beneficial use as a medicine as well. So I think there's a, it's a trick there in balancing the, the benefits versus the dangers of some of these substances. Yeah, I would say the, the hallucinogen class or subclass of NPS has certainly been the smallest for us in terms of new drugs, but also in terms of uh, detections overall. And there could be many reasons for that. I mean, we have seen a variety of PCP and ketamine-like uh, sort of isomers over the years. Fluoxetamine or fluoroxetamine, the 2-fluoroisomer of that uh, analog, the 2-fluoro-2-oxo-PCE, seems to be the sort of the newest of the hallucinogen analogs that uh, or derivatives that have has emerged recently and does seem to be gaining some traction. We've seen that uh, really across the United States uh, in a variety of different scenarios. We've actually seen it mixed in with fentanyl for whatever reason. So that seems to be the, the newest, and I'm uh, assuming we'll see some additional reports of that as time goes on. But uh, other than that, we, we don't see very much of the methoxy PCP or the hydroxy PCP anymore. Uh, we don't really see all that much 2-fluorodiscloroketamine anymore. So these are drugs that kind of seem to, to come and go and, and, again, do have some pretty low positivity, at least in our, uh, in our population that we're surveilling. 
I mean, that's that's another issue that you guys know the trends of what's coming and going much better than I do. So I'm I'm just enjoying listening to that part of the conversation. But I do think that isn't a tough one for for many labs that might have smaller resources is to to try and catch on when an NPS has been prevalent enough that it should be on it should be on your radar. And I think again with with some of the new synthetic cannabinoids that have been coming out lately, we see them coming up, but we don't really see that many toxicology cases of them. And that might be that they are precursors and by the time they get to toxicology there's something else, or it might be that they're just not catching on. And you know, I think that is a balance you have to do in your own lab to judge how much resources you have and and see what what you can do, and also the the traditional keeping track of what's happening in in your local area. Yeah, so, in addition to uh, Svante being the the chair of the TF NPS committee, he's also on the Soft NPS committee with me, and we actually did a, a survey of labs uh, related to the scope recommendations that we put out, and not surprisingly. The NPS class that's most tested for by labs is the NPS benzodiazepines and followed pretty closely by NPS opioids. Uh, and last on the list is the hallucinogen. So it is something that is definitely sort of time and resource and jurisdictionally related um, in terms of whether or not labs are uh, are going to see those drugs. But to your other point, Svante, one of the things as a forensic toxicologist that's always striking to me is whether or not we do see these drugs in our forensic toxicology casework. So early on when we were seeing these new oxazid compounds and the Chipiatas and the ADB Fubiatas, when we weren't seeing those in forensic toxicology cases, that was really an early indication to me at least that they may not be active or at least may not have high potency um, because there were certain synthetic cannabinoids that we had seen in whether they were in custody deaths or uh, or other post-mortem uh, type samples where we were, when we were seeing those without any other drugs, it was a a decent indication to us that those drugs at least retained activity, uh, whether we knew they were highly potent or not was a, a different story. Um, but when we weren't seeing these in our in our forensic toxicology casework, that was a kind of an early indication. And that's something that I think is really interesting to pair up with the sort of drug material or the early identifications in, in pills and powders and things, because that could be, like I said, it can be a good, uh, a good indication. It just stresses the importance of early warning. No? And you know this connection between the the toxicologist labs and the you know the the people working on seizures and the people working on pharmacology. So if there's not to tout the UNODC early warning system at an international level, but nationally, and I know countries are developing more national and regional early warning systems in South America and the Southeast Asia as well. So as these become stronger, the quality of the data that we have from our perspective, looking at things globally as well as what they would be able to see nationally and regionally only gets better and brings those different stakeholders together through whatever medium it is, but it just needs to be there even stronger data. It's all about the quality of the data. The hard thing is, I totally agree, Connor. It's great to have these global and then national and then more local early warning systems and, uh, you know, feeding information through. The hard thing is getting people to, it's hard enough getting them to submit it to one NPS portal or whatever, getting them to submit it to multiple places. You know, we've got the UNODC portal. Here in uh, our part of the world, uh, Factor is our organization. We have our own NPS portal. There's, you know, the high-res NPS where people can submit very technical data. There's all sorts of things where people can submit data. We almost need like a 
a mega portal where people can just put in their information once and it sends it off to all these different information gathering things. But yeah, it is important just to get those local trends as well. I think we need to be allocated more resources to be able to do it so we don't see it as part of like extra work that we have to do. You know, it's just part of the work or it should be put in our work plans to make it a little more accountable, I suppose. I don't know. But you're right. This is the difference is a lot of these databases don't necessarily communicate with each other. Many of them have very common, very things in common that allows them to be mapped in a sense, but that still is is a large data processing challenge. But we're we're working on it a lot with national bodies that do collect information from different country different labs nationally so we might have a stronger relationship with a body in Australia that would provide us labs from uh, information from Australian labs so we wouldn't need to try and chase it down from other people so these kind of tiers of mechanisms need to work and work well together i think yeah no i i do see a lot of of challenges for laboratories. You see challenges of, can we report this? It's sometimes you have, when you're trying to tell people in your organization higher up that you want to do this, it comes back with all kinds of questions of who can see the data, what can they do with it, where, where is it going? And and sometimes that can be at a political level that's where, where you need to make a stronger effort to explain the necessity and the importance of these. And I also think a lot of labs, especially smaller ones, are struggling with the with finding the, the labor hours. And even when in some programs, labs have been offered labor hours uh, or compensation for the labor, they still can't hire based on they get paid for four hours a month or whatever it might be. And they still have a hard time finding the the staff time to so I to your point Tim if if these things could be streamlined to report once and also lessen the burden of reporting I think th- those things are going to be critical moving forward. Yeah, we we do advocate this. We were talking about work with political decisions. We do. I spend a lot of my time talking to people from member states, bringing them to the laboratory here in Vienna, and stressing the importance of what the the work that the labs do. So it does have an effect. It just takes it takes some time, maybe, to trickle down into national policy. But yeah, that's that's a huge part of the work that we do here. We are getting better, though. I mean, in in the last ten years. We've gotten a lot better at collecting information and sharing information as well. Actually, that's a that's a key part of it as well. Collecting it is one thing, but sharing it with people is another issue. You guys are all involved in trying to share that information in various ways. Obviously, that's what we're doing right now on the podcast. But what have you found works well for laboratories in terms of the way that they want to receive information about what the trends are and things like that? What we did a few years ago with a lot of toxicology labs is we brought them to Vienna. We brought like maybe 50 to 60 toxicologists from around the world and sat them down in little rooms for two or three days and asked them, what kind of information can you share? What can't you share? We didn't really get the the answer of how easy it would be to do so, but we, we kind of have an idea of what people are able, and obviously to see the differences between different parts of the world, uh, what people are allowed and not allowed to share. So I think it's understanding what how people do generate their data. Is it sufficient for us to then maybe use but also letting them know for what purpose we would use this information and how it might be important to them but as you say the thing is we need to give back to the people who give us the data so that they see that there's there's a value in it so we need to work on what we do there better to and it feeds into the 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 manuals and guidelines and reference materials that we generate 
as our job to give to labs, but is that what they need or do we need to give them more and quicker? Yeah, I, I agree with you, Connor. It's, it's very different across the world. I mean, Alex has been on behalf of, of the um, soft NPS committee put together these scope recommendations in the US that have had an immense impact and, and it's very appreciated across the US as I've, at least in my experience when I talk to people. But when we were talking about expanding that to other regions of the world in the NPS committee, it seems like that was not what the European toxicologists I talked to were interested in or the Asian toxicologists. Um, they didn't really see a need to to replicate those efforts in other parts of the world. And, you know, it's just different where what's needed and how you how you want the information yeah and that's the thing isn't it like from from our perspective is trying to know how do we need to to tailor the response because we know that mps have emerged completely differently in different parts of the world so how do we adjust what we need to do prioritizing what's needed for for different regions of the world this is yeah ongoing continuing and evolving yeah, I would. Uh, I really see this as being uh, there really being two parts to this. I mean, the first part, Connor and, and Svante have done a good job of addressing, and that's uh, that most most forensic scientists, whether they be toxicologists or chemists, they're interested in and in kind of wanting to know what the top priority is. Uh, I think it's extremely daunting to see that there are 50 new NPS in a year. Uh, most labs want to know, well, what is going to be the drug that's going to impact my work the most. And if I have to develop a new assay, I want to develop a new assay for the drug that's going to be around uh, or maybe around for the longest or maybe in the most cases. I want to develop the assay for the drug that's going to be in 100 cases rather than the drug that's going to be in one. So I think I think having that level of priority is really important. Uh, and then the second aspect is really trying to relay what the impact is. And what I mean by that is that oftentimes the scientists working at EMCDDA and UNODC uh, and as part of uh, our programs here in the United States, uh, we're often in the best position to understand what the impact is going to be. Uh, I think for most forensic scientists, they don't necessarily understand the history. They may not be as in tune with pharmacology across the various subclasses. So sometimes I think it's easiest to consume that information when it's been synthesized or boiled down into what is the most important aspect. And the synthetic cannabinoids are a great piece to that. When uh, when when someone sees that there's a new synthetic cannabinoid out there, they might not know that it's a precursor. They might not know that its pharmacology is suspected or its activity is, is suspected to be low or its potency is suspected to be low. Uh, but that's something that uh, having looked at several, I mean, maybe hundreds of iterations of synthetic cannabinoids that uh, that our different agencies know about. So I think it's, again, I think it's prioritizing, putting things in a priority level as to what's the top priority versus what would be a sort of a lower priority. And then it's, again, sort of taking the information and boiling it down to, well, what is what is the, what is significant about this? Why is this new drug significant? Where has it been uh, identified? Uh, has it been identified in postmortem cases versus DUID cases versus hospital cases versus none of the above? So I think that's that's important to, to many forensic scientists. No, and I think there is a there is a feedback loop here is that we need to be aware of and, and where I think the, the work of the international organizations and, and the American organizations too is very important. And that is, if you as a lab decide that, for example, synthetic benzos is not a problem and you don't test for them, you're not going to have any cases with them 
in your area. And then you're going to get feedback to yourself that we don't have any cases and, and you're going to be comfortable. And uh, I think it's it's much more obvious to a lab when they put something in their method and then they never see it again. Uh, you know, that's it's really important that we get the, the information out and that we get it out quickly enough so that people realize that they at least need to look for it. You're getting it out quickly is important, but it's not like labs are going to change their methods every two weeks or something, you know, like it's it's hard to change a method. It takes work. It takes validation. Sometimes you got to, you know, take someone offline, off casework to do that for a little while. So probably people are only going to do it when it's a high priority, as you were talking about, Alex, when if something comes along that they think, wow, we really need to be looking for this one. Okay, let's change the method. Let's put in a bunch of these other things that we sort of know about, but they're not changing their methods every time that they hear about a new NPS coming out. No, and I think that's another thing I hear from a lot of labs that I'm talking to and a lot of toxicologists. And I think it's unrelated to the NPS trend. We're also in a trend where, at least in the US, we're, we're really working on strengthening the quality of, of toxicology and how we work. And I think that, that that work is also trickling down internationally. But I think one of the important thing is to make sure that we don't throw away what we have while we do that. It's I, I think... Uh, in the upcoming years, one very important thing is to to come up with best practices of how do we include resources like the high-res NPS, the databases that come out of, of the vendors. How is the best way to work with those in a toxicology lab? Because I think it's pretty clear to all of us here that, that for most labs, it's not an option to have fully validated methods that are updated every second week for any NPS. So... If we cannot find a way to sort of passively look for these new NPSs, there's a risk that, that a lot of labs will just give up and not look for them at all. Yeah, so one of the things that also came from the survey uh, that the soft NPS committee did was that uh, for our scope recommendations, overwhelmingly, people were supportive of the scope recommendations being quarterly. But on the other side of that coin, nearly everyone uh, well, I shouldn't say nearly everyone, I don't remember what the percentage was, but a very large percentage said they didn't feel like they were attainable on a quarterly basis. Uh, so that's something that that's information that we now have. And, and we're going to try and work with uh, other folks here in the U.S. to figure out how do, well, how do we get there? I mean, obviously, it's a, a resource issue, right? Whether it be time, personnel, uh, money, instrumentation. But that was quite, uh, quite an interesting uh, finding from that survey. Uh, I will say that forensic uh, scientists toxicologists, chemists, whatever they may be, I've always been very uh, surprised by how creative and innovative they are. Uh, with the introduction of high-res mass spectrometry and our QTOF or Orbitrap screenings, uh, it's pretty easy to add a new analyte to the scope, whether it's under surveillance or whether it will actually be part of the method. Uh, but I have been very uh, intrigued by uh, how laboratories find ways to, to add new NPS, uh, whether they be screening methods by triple quad or uh, or whatever it may be, uh, using just specific transitions to get an idea of whether or not uh, a drug may be emerging. But, uh, but it does go back to your point, Tim, that that people cannot or labs cannot be updating their scope on a uh, on a monthly basis, uh, let alone a quarterly basis. I mean, that's that's kind of the the feedback that we've gotten. But again, having a, an understanding of what the most common NPS is in your area uh, is always important. And then uh, certainly, there's a lot of ways to figure out what that is. There's a lot of labs that are doing. Uh, sort of some 
inter collaboration with their seized drug units, uh, which is fantastic to get an idea of, of what may be appearing. And, and then they're also talking with their colleagues in neighboring jurisdictions or across the country. So we know that we're fortunate enough uh, to be able to, to look for all of the MPS. That's kind of the, the goal of our program, but we know that's not realistic and sort of a routine forensic toxicology lab. It's like what you mentioned at the start, Tim. It's 10 years now. We know a lot more. So, you know, 10 years ago, we there were like 250 NPS that had emerged. So we first saw that it might be something everybody needs to be aware of. But everybody working in this area now knows an awful lot more than they, they knew 10 years ago. So we just have to have it educate ourselves to become more uh, innovative. And that just needs to continue. What do we need to have in place in order for us to be able to report a certain thing about this NPS? Does that meet the same requirements as it does for all the traditional type of, of analysis that we do, maybe that kind of adapting the flexibility to that area as well would be helpful prioritizing things going forward. No? Like you say, Alex, using a QTOF or something like that is quite easy to add things to the database and, okay, they're not validated. You're not sure if you'll detect them, if you'll recover them, but at least they're in your database. Harder for a triple quadrupole method where it's targeted i have wondered whether it'd be worth if you're developing a, a large triple quad method like a comprehensive screen method putting in a bunch of dummy transitions when you validate that method so that you've got those sort of uh, blank spaces if you like otherwise you know if you add more drugs later you're increasing the number of transitions and decreasing you know points across the peak and so on which might affect the validation but if you put in a bunch of dummy ones at the start you're just leaving yourself a bit of space where you can add new things because you know they're going to come. You know there's going to be new things you're going to want to add. Yeah, that's the type of uh, sort of creative and innovative ideas that that I'm talking about. I have not actually heard anyone suggest that. So I think that's a, a really interesting thing to bring up. And yeah, that could be something that's really successful. And then if you if you have, say, room for, for 20 drugs, you can sort of cycle NPS in and out based on things that you know uh, you may or may not see. I mean, yeah, that's a great idea. One thing I've wondered about with all the talk about semi-synthetic cannabinoids and at the moment, you know, labs have been kind of scrambling to make sure they can separate out some of these isomers of THC. With NPS, obviously, we know that there can be isomers. We don't necessarily know everything that's out there. Do you think when we report an NPS as being present, should we be more cautious in saying we've presumptively identified it as this, but we don't actually know, you know, what isomers are around? This whole thing with THC just kind of makes me think about that, where people may have been reporting things in the past and it was actually a combination of multiple isomers or something like that. I know that more and more when when maybe cathinones and phenethylamines get reported to us because of the national legislation that people have that's a little more class wide they don't go specific they do say it's four or two or three or four um so i think whatever and hopefully this then makes it easier to define national legislation and then people can make the the work that they do easier but it then makes it hard for us to know well exactly which isomer are you talking about yeah for sure i'm gonna actually use this sort of tiered approach again to answer uh answer this question obviously at the top is is always wanting to know the exact isomer get quantitative data but that's not always possible. And reporting an unresolved isomer is better than not reporting the drug at all. And I think it all comes down to, in our laboratory, we use the reference comments to comment as to what we have or have not distinguished. So uh, 3-methylmethcastanone was a great example. Uh, our laboratory just decided that we weren't going to put 
as much time and resources into resolving all of the isomers. We were able to separate two and four, but I forget uh, where three came in on the list. I don't remember if it was closely alluding with two or four, but uh, we ultimately just made the decision that we would report as methylmethcathinone. Uh, and in our comments, we would say that the isomers were not resolved. So I think laboratories have the the option to do that. Obviously, every laboratory is going to have a little bit different of guidelines. Um, at the end of the day, I know that it would have been more beneficial to have truly confirmed that it was or was not 3-methylmethcathinone versus some of the other isomers. But the reality is, is that a lot of times, too, when, when we're reporting an NPS, we may or may not know uh, what isomers are going to exist. So at the time, you may be doing the best analysis that you can. Uh, I kind of relate that back to our experience with dimethylpentylone. When dimethylpentylone first emerged, we knew that we were going to have to develop an assay that resolved it from N-ethylpentylone. So we did that. We we were able to separate it. But then uh, N-propylbutylone uh, came out, which was also an isomer, and it was co-alluding with dimethylpentylone. So we had to go back and redevelop the assay, uh, separate out the analogs, and uh, and report there. So I think that there's a lot of different ways that this this can come up. This is this has certainly come up with the synthetic cannabinoids as well. When you have a five fluoropental tail, do you really know that the fluorine is in the five position or uh, or is it uh, in the four position, the three position, whatever it may be? I think really at the time of our analysis, we need to do the best work that we can and and be open about those isomers. And as uh, if we know about them and as things emerge, we have to kind of be sort of dynamic enough and and sort of uh, being able to go back and uh, and shift our our mindsets and uh, and again be open to those limitations or caveats, but yeah, the the semi synthetic cannabinoids are are quite interesting because I always joke that if you're a toxicology lab, you could be redeveloping this method forever. Uh, it doesn't seem like there's any end in sight. You uh, at first it was okay, let's separate nine and delta nine and delta eight. Then it was like, oh no, well, uh, exo THC is out there and delta six A ten A is out there, and then you're starting to separate all these out, and then you're like, oh no, what about the metabolites? Now we got to separate out all the carboxy uh, THC metabolites, and you throw others. Uh, or other uh, semi-synthetic cannabinoids in there. And it's like, okay, well, we're looking at this version, but we don't know if another version is going to come up. So it really does feel like a never-ending process of of trying to separate out all these. And it's it's not ideal. It's not easy. Certainly not fun, unless uh, you're an analytical chemist that likes to sit in the lab and dedicate your time to resolving those isomers. It can be fun uh, and rewarding in the end, but usually the process to get there is is not as fun as as some might think. No, and I think and I think an important first step is just to be aware of it. One of the things I find scary is when you get the the say free fluoro fentanyl analog and and you hit it and you get a nice peak and then you never buy the reference standards for four fluoro fentanyl and and you never have that problem that they cool out because you never looked. I think it's Regardless of how you report and, and what you can do at your local level, I think it's important to be aware that there might be things out there that, that you haven't tested and that you haven't resolved and that, you know, uh, keep an eye on even the stuff that the MPSs you, you choose not to test for in your lab so that you at least know that it's something you don't know. Another soapbox of mine in this area is the chromatography. If if you're doing a chromatographic screening and then a chromatographic confirmation, please try and, and use some sort of different chromatography. Don't use the same column and the same mobile faces in both methods, if possible. I know some of these chromatographies are very delicate and very hard to get to work at all. But if you can, 
try to get a different uh, a different chromatography going because that at least gives you a chance that the stuff that's co-alluding on one column does not co-allude on the other. And you get some sort of hint in your system that, that there's something there that you didn't know about. I think we try to ref- we're trying to more to reflect this when we do a new manual or we have a manual and guideline that we need to revise. It's like, okay, let's present some of the analytical challenges that could be a ch- an issue for this particular group of substances. And like, are there solutions out there that can be looked at the, irrespective of capacity, but at various different levels of the capacity that can, you know, help people to look for what they need to look for. But looking for what you need to look for globally is a different thing. So we try to be broad, but specific at the same time. It's kind of hard to find that balance. But I think the more we know through the information that we receive from laboratories, it helps us to prioritize what we need to do. So it's all a piece, all different pieces of the jigsaw, I think. Yeah, at the end of the day, we can all just do the best we can do, can't we? And labs have different amounts of resources. And I think what we're trying to, with all of this information sharing, we're trying to level the playing field, at least in terms of the information that people have access to, whether or not every lab is going to be able to, you know, screen for an equal number of NPS, then they're probably not because they have different resources and different technologies they're using and things like that. But if everyone can have access to the information, at least that's a start. And like you say, Svante, yeah, being aware that's really the first step. So that's probably a good place to end this episode. Thanks very much, guys, for joining me. Thank and you. Uh, thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. Registration is now open for the 61st annual TAFT meeting taking place from the 2nd to the 6th of September 2024 in St. Gallen, Switzerland. The early bird rate is only available until May 31st, so be sure to register soon for the reduced rate at www.tft2024.org. We look forward to welcoming you to St. Gallen for an inspiring, engaging and enlightening conference.